Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Terry Crews and Pornhub, and David Fitch will be joining us. You're listening to The Common Good. everyone welcome to the common good happy friday as i never say but i felt like saying it today so there it is it's out there in the ether uh, a couple of things before we get rolling here you can find us on facebook the common good radio show that's where we post our articles you can send us messages there's a lot of lively debate happening on a couple of those articles as of late which we encourage and we uh, we welcome all of your feedback there you can also review and share that page and all that stuff plus we're podcasted so if you're a podcasting type and you wouldn't mind Subscribing, rating, and reviewing helps us out a whole ton. Plus, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And if those aren't enough options, you could always go to 1160hope.com slash the common good, and all of our old shows are there. Brian Fromm, before we get rolling, how are you feeling this Friday? I feel good. It's a good yeah. Friday. Uh, apparently, it's going to be a little warm this weekend, but uh, the weekend's here. And uh, no, I am doing well. How about you, my friend? Well, we're doing, I mean, warm indeed. We uh, We went to the zoo. You were asking about that because you were stalking me on social media. It is, um, it's bizarre still. It's, you know, certainly not to the capacity that it would be under normal circumstances and everyone's wearing masks, but you know, my boys are a great age for it. So it's like, they got these big robotic dinosaurs that they loved. They like the dinosaurs almost more than like the actual animals, which is always tricky. You're like, yeah, but there's a, there's a lion right over here. And they're like, dinosaur. Well, I don't blame you. That's pretty cool. But my favorite, yeah. uh, my favorite zoo story. I took my youngest daughter there one day, and she, I said, "Where do you want to go first? And she said, uh, "I want to see. I want to go to the unicorn exhibit." Uh, and so I paused whether to tell or not, and I just said, uh, "That that exhibit's closed today, sweetie. You're going to need to ask mom next time she brings you." <laughs> <laughs> well, I felt bad too because you know, obviously, anything that's inside is closed, and like right. the only animal that my boy really wants to see is the gorilla. And uh, the gorillas are all in, so the whole time we're looking at these incredible animals. He's like, gorilla, gorilla, papa, gorilla, mama. <laughs> we're like, yeah, but this is a hippo, man. That's pretty cool. Gorilla. I want a gorilla. I'm like, okay. Well, <laughs> what are you going to do? All right. So That's I'm going to, I'm going to read the headline out of Christian post and uh, Brian Fromm's going to get us into it. So it begins by saying defund Pornhub. Christian actor, Terry Crews declares as 1.5 million demand porn site to be shut down. What is going on here, sir? Yeah, Terry Crews, who you might know from America's Got Talent or Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, uh, it says, has denounced the website Pornhub. A grassroots effort has been launched to shut down the global pornography website Pornhub amid allegations that it's profiting off the trafficking of underage girls who are forced to perform sex acts in video. So Crews said, defund Pornhub and added all these likes and retweets. Uh, If you go down further, it's actually some stuff I didn't know. It says Pornhub, which requires no legitimate forms of age verification from users who are uploading content, ultimately is fueling demand for sexual abuse material and putting lives at great risk. It is past time to shut down Pornhub. And so there's this movement. And I don't know, uh, you know, I'm a couple credit shy of my law degree, so I don't know how you go about this, but. But just highlighting, I think, the damage that pornography does and the fact of the age and sex trafficking and everything else, uh, the petition that's being launched even says Pornhub, the world's largest and most popular pornography site, has been repeatedly caught enabling, hosting, and profiting from videos of child rape, sex trafficking, and other forms of non-consensual content Mm. exploiting women and minors. And so if nothing, hopefully this works, if nothing else, 
having a grassroots movement to highlight this, uh, to put it all kind of in front of us going, oh, I don't even want to think about that. But man, that's such that's so just dirty and ugly part of our culture, a multi-billion dollar part of our culture. Yeah. Uh, yet good for them. And, uh, you know, again, when, when I first read the article, I was like, oh, I don't even want to think about this. And you're like, well, that's the point. We need to think about these things. And uh, hopefully it says we're calling for Pornhub to be shut down and an ex- its executives held accountable for these crimes. Uh, so more power to them. I don't know exactly what a petition can do, uh, but hopefully it gets law enforcement looking at them. Okay, just to clarify, you said more power to them a couple of times. You're not saying more power to Pornhub, just or Nope. Thank just you for the clarification. For a couple of times, I was like, I don't know that that's clear. <laughs> I mean, more pa- thank you for, for saving me there. I mean, more power to those who are fighting them and trying to get yes, them down. Right, right. <laughs> Which, you know, trafficking is something that uh, I think really intensified on my radar probably seven or eight years ago. There was a ministry here in Chicago called Gridlock, and they were they were giving us some statistics just about DuPage County. And I legitimately raised my hand because I thought she misspoke. I thought she added a zero. And she said, no, that's every year right in your own county. Not not even this isn't in some other country or in some other, you know, part of the part of the world where you maybe would expect it. This is like right here. This is down the block. This like it just felt like a punch to the stomach. It was like I I had no idea. I want to ask you more of a philosophical, ethical question now. Is that all right? Yes. So I think we can all agree. I hope we can all agree trafficking, human trafficking, sex trafficking, just vile, awful, evil as Christ followers, or just as humans, we need to stand against it. We need to work in any way that we can to dismantle it. Let's say none of that is a part of it. Let's say it's a, it's a different pornography site. You and I as Christ followers have an opinion, a pretty strong one about pornography, but let's say it's a site that's just simply a bunch of consenting adults. And there's like really rigorous, uh, parameters in place for content that people would subscribe to. And let's say there was some big outcry to defund that organization. What, what would you say to that scenario? Uh, I, I think what I would say is, you know what, in the free market system we live in, they can probably exist if all of those parameters that you set were right, right? Like no right. criminal activity, none of this. Uh, but man, the church still needs to stand up. The Christ fires, and quite frankly, uh, the statistics about pornography use within the church versus outside the church is is really hard to read and sad. And so I think we as the church, uh, you would hope something that you're describing could be uh, kind of choked out at the roots by people not t- not partaking, right? As mm-hmm. opposed to the government coming in and shutting it down. Sure. Uh, now, we do know a lot of the pornography sites do uh, deal in trafficking and sexual right. abuse and all sorts of other things. And those should be shut down by law enforcement. But what you're describing... You would like to think that the church and other um, institutions uh, of morality can come in and kind of choke it out from from not having their people uh, partake. But unfortunately, that's not been the case. Uh, right. but yeah. Would you agree with me? Do you think that's kind of the way you'd, you'd separate that? Uh, I, th- I think that's fair. You know, some of it is like you were talking about free market, uh, freedom of expression. Those types of things get they get tricky, obviously, as it pertains yeah. to the church and maybe more specifically our church, it's something that I think needs to not only just be sort of like a, a silent position that's held, but like talked about. Um, I think, you know, we we have no problem counseling people through all sorts of addictions. And yet for some reason, like anything in the in the realm of sex addiction, people in the church, at the very least, tend to everyone kind of blushes and we sort of 
turn a blind eye. I mention it every time we yeah. talk about this topic, triplexchurch.com is a, is yeah. an incredible resource. They're, I think, some of the best in terms of like actual practical uh, guidelines and resources and counselors and all those things. But not everyone, you know, would say they're addicted to sex either. There, there is. I just I ask the question because it's it's intriguing to me because you and I have positions on it uh, as Christ followers, as pastors, that I would you know instruct right. Christian people a very specific way, and anyone else who would ask, frankly. But does you know does that get tricky? It was like, well, it's uh, it's all above board, and that's not, that's not my. They're not asking for my opinion on that matter. I, it still breaks my heart that this is a part of your life, but you're not a professing Christian, or you've not asked for my opinion, or I don't know. I just thought there was some some interesting dynamics there. That's not really what this story is, though. What Terry Crews is doing, right? I think is really significant because of all the reasons and more. All of the and like you mentioned, you you know you didn't know a lot of those things. I imagine a lot uh-huh. of people don't know those things. And uh, I would encourage you to go and read the whole article, read multiple articles. There's a bunch of writing on it. And uh, I, I think it's a really, really important conversation. I'm glad that Terry Crews is, is shedding some light on it. That's right. That's right. Coming up next, professor and author David Fitch is going to join us for a couple of segments, not only to talk theology in his book, but he actually had a Facebook post that we talked about earlier in this week that I want to pick his brain about a little bit. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple of things. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We post every article we talk about there. You can also send us a message if you want. You can find us both on Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk, plus wherever it is you find fine podcasts. They somehow let ours squeak in under whatever those parameters are, but you can find it, you can subscribe, you can rate, you can review all of, that, all of that helps us out a whole ton. And uh, someone that we reference a good deal on the show is actually with us right here via the magic of technology, David Fitch. Welcome to the show again, sir. Hey, hey, always good to be with you two guys. You, you, you provide the entertainment for good theology. <laughs> oh, thanks so much for saying that. We'll in, take li- it. in light of that, would you just take a, a minute or two and uh, introduce yourself to our audience in whatever way you see fit? Yeah, uh, my name is David Fitch. I uh, am a professor at Northern Seminary. Our larger campus is in Lyle, west part of Chicago. And I'm a pastor at Peace of Christ Church, which is the Church of the Christian Missionary Alliance, actually a church plant to the Christian Missionary Alliance in Westmont, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'm David, we're excited to have That's you back it. on. We, we wanted to start by talking about this Facebook post you made that Ian and I talked about a day or two ago entitled Top 5 Fundy Backlashes as Seen in Progressives Today. And we had a great time discussing this. Before we dig into it, I want to know, I'm curious, just why would you write it? What was the purpose to take the time to write this uh, this post? Well, you know, part of my job at Northern Seminary is to think about uh, church and, and engaging culture for the gospel. And so I'm always thinking about this, and uh, I am just seeing uh, you know, several of the topics in that post, I'm just seeing these kind of reverberations on, on issues like atonement, substitutionary view of the atonement, purity culture, um, mm-hmm. even science and evolution. I just think uh, the backlash and um, somehow pastors, somehow Christians got to be able to navigate these backlashes so that we, we don't go to extremes and miss the goodness of what what God's trying to do 
in those various areas, including, you know, the Bible, including science, including sexuality. Uh, but too often we're caught up in these kind of overreactions. How do we navigate right. those? So I wanted to write something okay. about that. See, and this is what I appreciate about your writing too, because it feels like more and more Facebook and Twitter is like a lot of hot takes and mic drops. Usually it's condensed to like one sentence and you often will write these like long treatises, these long treatments of complicated issues that I don't often find in Facebook. And I don't want to assume people heard the segment from a couple days ago. So could you actually walk us through a little bit the, the top five backlashes that you listed in your post here? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, first, I just want to say uh, to everybody out there listening, uh, the last 20 years, 30 years, uh, we have gone through massive cultural shifts. The church mm -hmm. uh, of 1952, uh, if it was retransplanted today, is just going to face a lot of challenges. And, you know, they're in sexuality. They're the way we look at authority in the Bible, the way we look at um, uh, science, the way we look even at the atonement. There's just no common uh, cultural consensus that made it easier to be in a church in 1952 or even 1962 than today. So whenever the church gets challenged, uh, mm. unfortunately, especially in the last 30, 40 years, we, we've wanted to kind of protect and and defend and, you know, uh, kind of uh, get heavy handed and say, no, it's got to be this way. And we get coercive. And whenever we do that, folks, we don't have a dialogue. There's a backlash. Right, and right. guys, have you experienced that backlash, that defensive kind of coercive, uh, you got to do it this way, threatening kind of, you know, when, when our churches uh, kind of got heavy handed with either sexuality or the Bible is inerrant and you can't say it's got a mistake. Have you experienced the backlash? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's interesting because I tend to feel the backlash more in digital spaces than in-person ones, it seems. Yeah. I know for me growing up, I, I, I think I felt it, but never really knew that what I was feeling. Right. And then I remember becoming a youth pastor and, uh, you know, doing the messages about purity or this or that. And I, I felt like I became heavy handed, <laughs> like kind of the, the next wave of it. So yeah, I totally get this, man. I, I totally understood what you're talking about. Yeah. And so uh, I guess what I'm pleading for with pastors, Christians, parents, uh, is we the, we need to make space for these questions to be asked, for these challenges to be heard, yeah. and then process and dialogue through these spaces, uh, as opposed to getting defensive or uh, threatening, or you know, uh, you got to do it this way, or you're going to. I, there's a famous preacher; uh, he's no longer in Chicago because he kind of had some problems. I won't mention his name, but he used to be very heavy. I'm going to tell you how to do it, and you need to do it this way. And I'm just telling you, people, right. blah blah blah. Is a heavy-handed approach that I think yeah. Yeah. there's a big backlash to, and it's resulted in progressive Christianity. Hmm. And Dave, I'm, I'm wondering. So so you've got the fundamental side and then and then the progressive backlash. Does that pendulum, in your opinion, just keep swinging back and forth uh, and become more extreme on each side? Or is there a hope that it will land in the middle as there's conversation? How do you see that? Because it sometimes feels like that pendulum just keeps swinging back and forth. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I go by the. Uh the theological stream named neo-anabaptist theology, anabaptist theology. Let's return to centering our lives on Jesus, the church, 
um, who he is as Lord and, and work out, work it out from there. Um, that's where I hope we land. But in order to get there, we have to provide space for people who are like in this backlash. So let's just take one example. I talk about purity culture and I talk about how things were changing in sexuality and our culture and evangelical fundamentalists then took some very good historical Christian wisdom, you know, about faithfulness, chastity before marriage. And they added some coercion to it and the rules and consequentialism and, and said, you got to do it this way. And if you do it this way, you'll get this and this and this. But if you don't do it this way, you'll get this and this. And, and they didn't deal with any of the underlying cultural problems uh, with sexuality that was going on. And now there's a backlash. I feel like there's almost like a rejection of traditional Christian sexual norms and values because mm-hmm. we're rejecting the coercion that got put into purity culture. And the things he did, uh, things it did to women, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you got to make space, folks, these days who are raising teenagers, to make space to talk through what's going on. Yeah. Oh, that's right. All right, so that's that's exactly why I want to have you on for two segments because I want to get a little more into that list because I think some of the questions that you raise are something that a lot of us can resonate with, regardless of our background. And so. David Fitch, both professor and author of the book, The Church of Us Versus Them, is going to stick around for one more segment here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, or wherever it is you get your podcast. We're a bunch of other places, too, but I'm not going to waste your time with all that right now. We are joined again by David Fitch, professor and author of the book, The Church of Us Versus Them, Freedom from a Faith That Feeds on Making Enemies. And we're talking specifically, actually, about a Facebook post he made earlier this week. Ryan and I talked about it a couple of days ago, and uh, his kind of title for it is simply Top 5 Fundy Backlashes as Seen in Progressives Today. It's fascinating. We've shared it to our Facebook page a couple of times. I can't encourage you enough to read it, but David, I'm wondering, can you just walk us through those five a little bit and uh, and what maybe some of those implications are? Yeah, so uh, the first one was the the book of Revelation and, and how uh, evangelical fundamentalists made that, which is really a great book, by the way, into about, you know, 666, <laughs> the rapture, thief in mm-hmm. the night, and, and added some coercion to it, you know, so scare tactics uh, to cause people to be holy and stay away from the world and I feel like the backlash in that is that many progressives uh, no longer see eschatology as important, no longer see the physical right. return and confirmation of the kingdom as important. The mm. uh, second one is the substitutionary view of the atonement. <clears throat> I feel like, uh, again, evangelical fundamentalists took some really good uh, atonement theory tied to uh, the Reformation, frankly, and then sure. and then allu- it, it really does illumine how God works with our sin and heals us and redeems us and forgives us. But they added coercion, kind of like you're going to go to hell and the wrath of God is going to get you. And the resulting backlash, I feel, is that many progressive evangelicals don't really see the merit of the representative aspects of the atonement. Um, We already talked about purity culture, but, you know, the Bible is inerrant. You know, again, evangelical fundamentalists got defensive defending the authority of the Bible 
uh, and added some coercion and, you know, said, hey, the, the Bible's inerrant no matter what. Don't question anything about the Bible or its history. And, and there's a backlash there. And you see it all the time with like people like Bart Ehrman who want who are out to prove the mistakes in the Bible and we lose significant power and authority of the Bible mm-hmm. for our time. And then the last one was science and evolution. You know, this actually goes back to the 30s and 40s, but evangelical mm-hmm. fundamentalists took what is really important historical Christian teaching about God's creation, and they added coercion to it when they got threatened by evolution and creation mm-hmm. science. And now I feel like, uh, you know, science became all bad or something, and we act, we reacted, and now science is just uh, good. You know, all kinds mm-hmm. of science is good, and we don't trust Christianity anymore. I think those are all backlashes that mm-hmm. went to an extreme, and we need to, you know, center ourselves again in, in all the good things in, as part of those doctrines. Right. But um, right. we need to do a lot of dialogue and presence and non-coercion. Hmm. And that, that leads into the, what I was thinking. How do we have a dialogue? How does that dialogue even happen between, as you call them, evangelical fundamentalists and progressives? Usually they talk at each other and about each other. Yeah. How do we get to a spot as a church where those dialogues are even happening? Well, uh, that was not the question I thought you were going to ask. I mean, I think that <laughs> is uh, in the uh, Church of Us versus Them, I talk about how every time there's an issue or um, something that is really important to the church, the church should gather together. There are people who are interested, you know, 10, 20, 30 people and search the scriptures and do it out of mutuality. And I describe in that book Mm -hmm. tactics for doing that, but I'm, I'm more interested in like people who are professors like me, people who are pastors, people who are parents, and they Mm got to deal with like people you know, in their teens and twenties and even thirties who are, who are like resenting the coercion of their churches growing up. And you got to find a way to listen and be present and listen to the, uh, cause really, I don't think the backlash is that much about what they actually believe. I think it's more anger and resentment for the way they were not allowed to dialogue and sort through things in their lives. And they felt coerced. I think we got to open that space up first what do you guys think? You guys are younger than me. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's a big heartbeat for us even behind this show was to create space and to have guests from numerous different political and theological persuasions. Because we I don't know that a week goes by that we're not upsetting somebody on either <laughs> on either side. And that can be a little taxing. I think that's part of why people don't engage in these conversations because it's exhaust it's Tribalism is so much easier. Just, I'm going to only talk with and hang out with and associate with people who think and act and talk and vote just like me. Engagement, I think for a lot of people, they just find overwhelming, which is why I appreciate like part of what I appreciate even in this comment section here. So Dan White Jr., who's uh, another great writer, he said fundamentalism is not what we believe. It's how we hold our beliefs. Do, do you agree with that? Yes. Oh, I, I so agree with that. And so part of the task of Christians today is to be confident in the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church and in your family and just calm down and listen. Listen to your teenagers. Listen to people who are angry. Unwind what happened there. Allow the Holy Spirit to do the healing work and then we can sort out what God really wants to do. 
mm-hmm. in the areas of our sexuality or 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 how he's going to save us or uh you know what role science should play in our lives i think uh that's really what's important that's good yeah David, I'm wondering, maybe you hear this from students or as a pastor, the people who might say, listen, all that really matters is right doctrine. We just have to get to the truth and get it right. All this talking about it, you know, and in fact, if there's a backlash, I need to tell them why they're wrong. Uh, Could you speak to the person who might feel that way? Just like, nope, I'm standing up for what's right, no matter what, what, you know, no matter what comes of it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so hard when, um, you know, uh, and, and now I, I must confess to everybody, I'm a white male. Okay. And for most mm-hmm. of our time in the United States of America, white people and especially white males, especially white evangelicalism and Protestantism in general has been the, you know, the majority faith. And we were never challenged and it was just easy to think, Hey, this is mm-hmm. the one thing I need to know. And it's never going to change, but actually right. the Bible has been contextualizing Jesus as Lord has been contextualizing for 2,000 years. So we have to give space to find the emphasis and to find the right way to say something, to connect with the new person we're talking to. And so, yes, Mm -hmm. there's faithfulness to doctrine, but then there's faithfulness to mission and engaging people Mm -hmm. in new ways with the truth of the gospel and the Bible and Jesus Christ. Amen. That's so good. All right. We, we only have like a minute or so left, but I would love, since you're not just a professor, but you're also a pastor, would, would you just pastor the people that are listening that are thinking, oh man, this all sounds nice. Sure. Dismantling this us versus them dichotomy and coming together and meeting in the middle. Would you paint, I don't know, some kind of picture of hope or, or vision for like what that actually could like look like in what seems like kind of unprecedented divided times? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, in the church of us versus them, I just talk about how we can meet as local bodies of Christ, even mm. as small as a group of five to 10 people around a dinner table in the neighborhood. And we can have the Bible right there and we can allow uh, Jesus to do his work. And we're in unprecedented times, really. Uh, there's so many multiple cultures going on. There's so much um, strife and defensiveness, even anger, and trying to hold on to the past. And Jesus is Lord in and through the struggles and the antagonisms, and he wants to work to make himself clear. You can be safe and secure and faithful by just hmm. like, like letting him work, wind, chilling out and listening. And uh, <laughs> it's just a posture of faith and trust that God can work. Yeah. And awesome. I love that. I love that. David Fitch is not only a professor at Northern Seminary right here in Chicago, he's also the author of a wonderful book, The Church of Us Versus Them, Freedom from a Faith That Feeds on Making Enemies. David, we mean it a lot. Thank you so much for your voice and for uh, taking time to join us. Guys, can, I just, can I just invite everybody to uh, join me on Facebook, Fitch, S-F-I-T-C-H-E-S-T. I'd love to have you follow me and join in these conversations anytime. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're one of my favorite follows. I can't encourage everyone enough to do that. Thank you so much for joining us, brother. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thank you. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. We are still on Facebook, still on Twitter, still on Instagram, still have a podcast. You, I'm sure you're sick of hearing me say it, but... 
we should maybe make it a contest. If we get like five reviews on the podcast, we won't mention the podcast for the, for a week or something. <laughs> That'd be great. With, with, with that kind of uh, incentive work on people, like, please stop mentioning, subscribe, rate, and review. I'll do anything. Well, subscribe, rate, and review then. And uh, <laughs> maybe, what you did there. maybe we'll stop. Uh, I will, I will get to reading the new review that we have. I keep mentioning it every day and I never do it, but, uh, before we get into this next story, Brian Fromm's going to tell you about some stuff. Yeah, here at the station uh, that we've got a show during the day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point Ministries. Well, Dr. David Jeremiah uh, and Turning Point Ministries are giving away hope all month long here on AM 1160. For a limited time, visit 1160hope.com slash contest to receive a free bookmark. It's the He Is bookmark, which is a wonderful reminder of the many names of Jesus. You'll also automatically be registered to win a brand new Jeremiah study Bible filled with insights, notes, and articles from Dr. Jeremiah. And also, uh, you don't miss your chance to win the grand prize, uh, which what did we say they were? Apple AirPods, uh, and including the new book, The Jesus You May Not Know as well. So visit 1160hope.com slash contest. Quick question. Can you really be giving away hope if it's already free? Is that... We have to, to say that, like, hey, normally this hope is five ninety nine, but we're just giving we're giving it away free. We for are dispensing hope, yes. <laughs> In these uncertain times, here's some free hope. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. All right, so uh, I saw this article on Business Insider, and the headline sort of stopped me in my tracks a little bit. Roughly half the Twitter accounts pushing to reopen America are bots. Researchers found, and for those of you following along, bots is short for robots. Uh, we did post this on our Facebook page. My buddy Gary weighed in and said, my money is on Russia being responsible. Um, I'm curious. Well, why don't you just get us into the article a little bit, Brian, and then we'll unpack it. Yep. As parts of the U.S. have lifted shutdown orders during the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been a fee- fierce argument, this article says, online <clears throat> about the risks and benefits of reopening. New research suggests that bots have been dominating the debate. Carnegie Mellon University uh, the researchers there analyzed over 200 million tweets discussing COVID-19 and related issues since January and found that roughly half the accounts, including 62% of the thousand most influential retweeters, appeared to be bots. That's a far higher level of bot activity uh, than usual, even when it comes to contentious events. The level of bot involvement in discussions about things like U.S. elections or natural disasters is typically 10 to 20%. The researchers identified bots using artificial intelligence systems that analyze accounts frequency accounts frequency of tweets, number of followers, and apparent location. Uh, Kathleen Carley, a computer science professor who led the research, said tweeting more frequently than is humanly possible or appearing to be in one country and then another a few hours later is indicative of a bot. The researchers said they found that among tweets about reopening America, 66% came from accounts that were possibly humans using bot assistance to spread their tweets more widely, while 34% came from bots. So I'm going to stop there, and I am going to admit that this is something uh, that I feel like I have no grasp on <laughs> whatsoever, <laughs> the concept of uh, robots and Twitter. Uh, but as we learned throughout time, uh, throughout the last couple of years, and particularly through this, uh, while it is something that sounds kind of sci-fi, kind of movie-ish, is almost funny, it does do uh, incredible 
influence and some would say damage uh, in in shaping the conversation on social media, which then goes a far way, a far um, way towards shaping the conversation culturally as a whole. Why? Why do you say some would say that it's dangerous? Why, why don't you think all would? Because uh, they might be like me and not having given much thought to it or even understand how it works. Like literally, if you told me, how does a bot work? I'm like, I have no idea. I don't have the first idea. So yeah, you're probably right. I don't know who out there would be like, nope, this is a good thing. Because I was thinking of it, if you agree with uh, what is being shaped, maybe you think it's good. But even then, I would hope you'd be like, no, but that's still a bad idea because it's still artificial and fake. Right. Um, so yeah, no, I think you're right. May, uh, hopefully all people would think this is a bad thing. I, uh, I'll pull up the Wikipedia definition for you. A Twitter bot is a type of bot software that controls a Twitter account via the Twitter API. The bot software may autonomously perform actions such as tweeting, retweeting, liking, following, unfollowing, or direct messaging other accounts, which to me sounds dangerous. I do remember this was, gosh, maybe 10 years ago now. I remember somebody, somebody launched a service where if you lost a loved one, they, uh, their like Twitter patterns could be uploaded into their software and they would promise to continue to tweet after your person had passed on, no which way. to me just sounds like a horrible idea. But even then I was like, I, I actually am not surprised that technology like that exists. We, we will synthesize your friends or your mothers or your grandmother, whatever their, their previous Twitter behavior. And I think you had to submit a whole bunch of other you know, documents to kind of track like the kinds of things they would like or say, and it would just start generating it for you so that their Twitter presence could live on. I was like, I don't think anyone needs Man. that. But I mean, by and large, based on even just that definition, though, you you can see why this, I think, is a is a big deal because it's not just a matter. It's not like canvassing. Like, you know that a flyer has been put in your door because it's, it's a flyer. You know, when you right. see a Facebook ad because it says sponsor. It says ad. It's clear that, I mean, it, it still might be annoying or inundating, but at least you know what you're looking at. Part of the difficulty with bots is that you, you don't actually know. So it does create a, regardless of the issue or the topic or the strategy, a false sense of the sheer magnitude of a position held based on the platform. And, you know, people with the right amount of power and or money and or influence could really pretty powerfully sway public opinion yeah. using, you know, bots and platforms in this way. Yeah. And you just think about, right. We have an election coming up. And so uh, you, you, like Gary, who you said on the, on the Facebook thing is, is he could be right. Right. I think it's the Russians. And we heard a lot about the Russians and social media in the 2016 election, but you could see either side of the aisle, the Democrats or the Republicans just getting really, you know, uh, innovative and smart with this uh, right. in, in a nefarious way. And really sweat, you know, the, the hard thing about the internet is it doesn't have to be true to be out there and shared. We've all learned that, right? And so, right. uh, when you have the cover of a bot, uh, putting stuff out there about Joe Biden, about Donald Trump, about whoever, uh, it's gone before you can even refute it. And so it's just, you can see how messy this, I almost said can be, how messy it already is. Like this is happening, obviously. And just because people like me are naive. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's not happening. And so, uh, yeah, as your eyes are open to some of this stuff, you're going, oh, my gosh, this is uh, this is kind of scary 1984 type level stuff that <laughs> that is uh, can really have such a huge influence within our culture in which people believe what they read on the Internet. <laughs> yeah, right. And 
and so yeah, no, this is this is really worrisome. So we we've done articles in the past about better ways to consume. In fact, coming up at the beginning of the next hour, we're going to talk about better ways to consume the news. And we've talked about even ways to fact check. There's obviously varying degrees of like rigorous fact checking. And some people are probably just better suited for it or more adept or have more time. At the very least, though, I share stories like this, not to spook people, not to not to freak people out, but to at least elevate the need for us and maybe especially Christ followers to be diligent in making sure that what we're not only reading, but what we're sharing and retweeting is factual. And again, I realize that does require a little more work, but I I really do think, I hope I'm not being too grandiose here for the Christ follower. It really is important that we are people of truth, not just on Sunday mornings, but also with what we share and what we endorse and what we talk about. So either way, We'd love to know what you yeah. think. Are you surprised by this number, by the way? Uh, you know, some of you like Brian, maybe think like, this is the first I'm hearing of this. Others are saying <laughs> old news. Like I, you know, of course this is what's yeah. happening. That's just what Twitter is. That's on our Facebook page. And uh, we would love to know what you think. Coming up next at the top of the hour from the Gospel Coalition, how to make more wise decisions when consuming the news. And then we'll be joined by the chosen creator and director Dallas Jenkins. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're like. Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkin here. And I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett and me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities? And Thriving Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible, but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors, to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously, and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about how can we more wisely consume the news, and then we'll be joined by the chosen creator and director, Dallas Jenkins. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good, part two, if I may. First hour in the book, second hour is just underway, and we got a lot in store for you. Real quickly, before we dive into all of that, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's not only where we post articles, we encourage dialogue, but if you want to send us a message, if you have ideas for future shows, you can send us a message there. Plus 1160hope.com slash the common good or wherever it is you get your fine podcasts. We are at the point now where we're thinking of maybe giving away cash prizes for people who subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, if that would entice you, you just let us know, and our producer would love to fund whatever that prize bank looks like. So in the meantime, it's probably just safer to go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review, and get that submission in early, and then we'll figure out the prizes later. Uh, An article, Brian Fromm, out of the Gospel Coalition by Brian Wayneand says, How to More Wisely Consume News. This is a topic that you and I have talked a lot about in the last year and a half that we've had a show. 
And not every article necessarily would, I think, agree with each other. But yeah. it's a topic that I think is kind of evergreen, like something that especially you know, while a lot of us are still consuming a lot of our news and information via a, a tiny little screen, we're not even having water cooler conversations or, you know, a lot of that stuff right. I felt like could be helpful in like weeding out that which was horrifically false or conspiracy theories or whatnot. So we're in an interesting time. And uh, I think this article is really interesting. So why don't why don't you get us into it? Yeah, it is a good article. He says the COVID-19 pandemic and protests of racial injustice and the media whirlwinds surrounding both have heightened an emerging tension for Christians. We need knowledge and information to act rightly and wisely, yet excessive news consumption often creates anxiety, division, quarrelsomeness, and frustration. In a media environment with limitless choices of information, most with some degree of bias or agenda-driven bent, Christians need more discretion than ever in our, quote, knowledge diets. Uh, so hmm. Christians, it says here, must recognize how severely much news media today works against our ability to think well and cultivate wisdom. And as well-known 1985 book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman demonstrated that a change in medium harmed the nature and content of our public conversations. That as our culture transitioned from primarily consuming written news to consuming visual images on television, discourse became more superficial and volatile preferring hasty provocation and extremism to nuance and moderation. This transformation has since accelerated by the internet. That's an understatement. Uh, yeah. It has uh, <laughs> fundamentally broken our discourse. Still, as much as the media landscape is a minefield of misinformation, manip manipulative clickbait and partisan rants, good journalism remains. Finding it, though, requires intentionality and discipline. Yet it can mm -hmm. guard us against a frenzy that undermines our ability to trust anything. To this end, I believe it's helpful to assess media of sources through a grid of biblical virtue. So I think that pretty much lays out the problem. It's funny, Neil Postman, I remember reading that book even when I was in college uh, in a communications class that he, in 1985, is talking about the difference from the written word to television. The internet wasn't even conceived of yet. And so now to go... Uh, to how much further that is, it does start to explain some of the issues we're having. But just last segment, you and I were talking about needing to be careful where we get our stuff. And so that for that reason, I think this article is helpful. Yeah, I agree. Uh, quick disclaimer, though, the Internet was technically invented in the 1960s. So it was conceived of in the really? in 1985. <laughs> yes. Yes, sir. It's its origins go that far back. Is, but is that when Al Gore, that's when Al Gore created it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, oh. <laughs> no, and and if you've not read "Amusing Yourself to Death," by the way, That's it's great. it's a really good read and kind of haunting in how timeless it is, considering yes. when he wrote it. That I think is super interesting. So he he lays out some uh, some wise virtues, some virtues of wise media consumption, and it's in the list form, which is Brian Fromm's favorite. So let me begin yes. with number one. These are virtues of wise media consumption. Number one, truth. God detests falsehood and desires Christians to likewise detest it. Proverbs 13, 5. While we have developed some awareness of the presence of falsehood on social media, we must also be wary of its presence in more established media. The fast pace of the news cycle today often makes truth and accuracy, even for the most professional and seasoned journalist, challenging. God wants us to discern fact from spin. Further, uncritically hearing and accepting falsehood is not a blameless act. Proverbs 17, 4. We should seek sources committed to presenting information truthfully and ideas honestly, even when they undermine the sources and our own preferred narratives. That is a jam-packed paragraph that I feel like I want to print off and like tape my wall somewhere. That's really good. 
Yep. Number two, sober mindedness. Scripture speaks often of sober mindedness as a fruit of mature Christians. These verses suggest that Christian wisdom is as much about what we choose not to say mm. as what we do say. As Proverbs seventeen twenty seven puts it, whoever restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. We should seek media sources that seek to say only what the facts permit, drawing the supportable conclusion rather than the, de the desired conclusion. Oh, that's good. Mm -hmm. Find sources that go where the facts lead rather than sources that use facts selectively to fuel a predetermined narrative. Wait, that happens? I, I, I've not started, seen any of that. Boy. It started back in the 1960s, apparently. <laughs> are, they, are they talking about the Good News Network? My goodness. Yes. Uh, all right. Number three. What's the list called here? Virtues of wise media consumption. This is number three. Humility. This is a big one. One of the most significant effects of increasing polarization has been increased tribal certainty that one's preferred side of a debate is right and everything the other side offers is wrong. We talk about that all the time on the show. Yeah. Be wary of media sources that assume this posture. As Christians called to live and think humbly, Ephesians 4.2, we must be willing to have our worldly paradigm shifted and bubbles popped, even when it's uncomfortable. That's a good word. We should seek sources that embrace the enduring complexity and uncertainty of public affairs, favoring nuance over simplistic hero and villain narratives. In this, we resist being wise in our own sight, and we avoid tribal blind spots, acknowledging instead the pervasive effects of sin on any side of a public debate. And he references Romans 12 there. Just kind of reading what he said there, like I immediately thought of David French. Like that's someone who I feel like yeah. is writing with with that in mind. You know, not perfectly, obviously, but certainly to a degree that I think is is commendable. Absolutely. Well, the last one here, and then there you're going to go into some practical steps. But the last one's peacefulness. Uh, God hates quarrelsomeness, derides anger, uh, rage, and calls us to make peace. In How the Nations Rage, Jonathan Lehman says the Christian's posture towards public affairs should reflect a, quote, strange and winsome confidence in God's redemptive history rather than a desperate desire to dominate worldly matters. Quarrelsomeness infects the soul by undermining this confidence in Jesus, and it infects the church through disunity. Peacefulness, of course, contrasts sharply with the tone of much media, especially certain cable news shows that have monetized outrage as a primary mechanism for entertaining and retaining viewers. Mm. Tuning into these shows is unlikely to profit a Christian. Wow. He just came Dang. out and said it. All right. So there's only like a minute left, but he actually gives some practical steps that we don't have time to unpack. Like always, I would encourage you go to the Facebook page and read the whole thing, but I'm just going to read the headings. So these are the practical steps that he offers. One. Prioritize written news and commentary. Two, read more than just headlines, which is what I'm doing right now. Three, <laughs> uh, avoid partisan sources. And four, don't read too much. I really wonder mm. what he's – I think that's important, though, too. What, weren't we quoting John Acuff a couple months ago when he's saying there's a difference between being informed and being obsessed? I think uh, yes, that probably applies a little bit here, too. With the 30 seconds or so we have left, Ryan, any one of those practical steps in particular kind of jump out to you? Uh, read more than just the headlines. How often do we just get headlines that come across our phone or you're scrolling through and yeah. then just to read them, but also that don't read too much. Sometimes you think that uh, quantity is going to help you discern things. And he's basically saying, no, shoot for quality here. Uh, there's so much quantity out there. So I, I, I found both those really helpful. This article is really good. It's really good. I'm probably going to reread it later. Well, coming up next, I think I can say this with confidence, friend of the show, Dallas Jenkins, yep. who's both the creator and, 
and director of The Chosen, a show that we've talked about a number of times on this show. He's going to stick around for two segments, and that is what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a whole heap of places, a smattering, if you will. Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post articles. You can send us messages. You can find us also on Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is you get your podcast, if you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, or reviewing, all of that helps us out a whole lot. Uh, in maybe the most repeated guest of the show, friend of the show even, Dallas Jenkins, who uh, you'll recognize for a number of reasons, but most notably the creator and director of The Chosen. You can learn more. You can watch thechosen.tv or get the app, which is even better. Welcome back to the show, Dallas Jenkins. Am I really one of your most uh, or the most uh, repeated guests on your show? Top three for sure. It's up there. We'll have to go back and look, yeah. Yeah, I don't want want to lie on air, but I'm pretty sure that's true. And I'm not sure if I should take it as a compliment because it's not like you said one of our favorite guests. It's just he's, he's been here a lot. Again, I'm wanting to be factual, Dallas. I don't want to yeah. lie to people. I don't. Right. He's he's very he's very present. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, Dallas, for people who don't know, and I'm going to ask, I'm going to throw you a curveball. I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself, but maybe maybe tell the audience something about you that they don't know yet. Well, uh, I'm sure there's uh, many members of your audience because uh, your your show is growing so fast, right? And is so popular that uh, that I'm sure I'm not. Uh, there's plenty of things that they don't know about me, but I I think as you mentioned in the intro, um, I I am the creator of the show, The Chosen, which you guys were uh, talking to me about it long before it was cool, but now it seems to be uh, growing pretty. Pretty strongly, and uh, and so that's what most people seem to to know me from. But you may not have—I don't know if you guys remember the original intro and bio for me that was given to you by somebody that I don't know. Used to introduce me as the man who has delighted audiences all over the world. (laughs) So, so uh, I think that's probably—I think people still don't know that uh, about me (laughs) because they're wondering. We've heard that he delighted audiences all over the world, but we don't know that he has. So, uh, but I am a, I'm a, a, a husband and father of four, so I think most people probably don't know that about me. We haven't talked about that on the show. I have four teenagers, uh, one, of, one of whom is uh, getting ready for prom tonight. So Wow. That's fun. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Dallas, I'm curious. Uh, I'm sure lots of people are asking you, where do we stand for the second season of The Chosen? Uh, what can people be expecting? Well, it's interesting. We're we're right in the middle of getting lots and lots of news about it, some of which I can't share yet. But I will tell you that um, we are very, very close, if not all the way to knowing where and when we're going to be filming. Um, we're probably 95 percent sure I'm actually going to be talking about it on a live stream next week. We'll be making a big announcement nice. on our uh, Facebook and YouTube channels um, about where and when we'll be shooting and uh, it's things are really moving well. We're and we're writing the second half of season two right now. Um, I actually just got the first draft of the script for episode seven of the eight eight episodes we're doing. So and it's it's terrific. So we're things are moving really well. In fact, I'm leaving for Los Angeles uh, Monday uh, and Monday the twenty something the the 
is like the 20th. Yeah, right. And um, I will be there casting for season two. I will be there doing some DVD commentary for season one. We have a special edition DVD coming out. Lots and lots of things are going on with The Chosen. So it's really it's really a, a great time. But um, another thing is the, I got together with the cast and we did a Zoom reading of a scene from season two. Hmm. And we're putting that out on our YouTube channel in a couple of days. So stay tuned for that if you want to get kind of a sneak peek oh, nice. that, uh, of season two that includes actors. Uh, we, we got 10 of the actors together on a Zoom call and read a scene. And so uh, that's going to be on The Chosen's YouTube channel uh, very soon. So keep an eye out for that. So you said you're going to L.A. for casting. Do I fit the description of any of the roles you're looking to fill? Is there any <laughs> for like a support, um, gonna, white pastor? Is that a... I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be honest. But uh, as as you've probably been hearing many times over the last two months, you're too white. I <laughs> I I don't blame you. I understand entirely. <laughs> Dallas, I, I'm wondering, too, because you've now written season one under normal conditions. And now season two is sort of getting rolled out under completely different circumstances. What has been different in the writing and the collaboration process, maybe even like your own headspace while in the midst of a global pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's not just the pandemic. It's also just all the social unrest of the last couple of months right. um, have combined to increase urgency. Um, we feel more than ever the need to get more seasons done sooner. Yeah. Uh, we believe that the stories of Jesus and the story of how Jesus handled um, social unrest when he was uh, was on this earth hmm. is, is extremely important now. It's a great example for us. Um, but also just people are desperate, I think, for for relief, for answers, for for a respite from from all that they're going through. And so that that's the biggest thing that I think we just feel more urgency mm-hmm. when I'm sitting in front of the computer and, and, and a blank page writing the script. Um, the blank page doesn't care what's going on outside my house. It doesn't care whether I'm wearing a mask or not. It doesn't care um, you know, about who how I'm identified publicly uh, with, with all of these movements going on. It, 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 I still have to, I still have to come up with uh, something that people are going to want to watch that takes place 2000 years ago. Right. And so that, that process is, is still the same. And it's ultimately still the same when it comes to my relationship with Christ, who defines the, the whole creative process of this show. Hmm. Um, I've said it on this show before with you. I've said it publicly many times that this show uh, and, and and me as the director writer is not just about my artistry or lack thereof. Uh, it's about m- what God is doing in my life and and how He's breaking me down and how He's humbling me so that I am a better vessel through which I can share these stories of Christ and His people for the people around the world. That's good. That's awesome. Uh, Dallas, last time we had John, I told you at the beginning of this pandemic, uh, my family and I we plowed through the chosen so i asked my kids today what we're gonna have dallas on do you have any questions and they all wanted to know something very specific and that is uh something i found fascinating is that you portrayed matthew to have i don't know autism asperger's uh just wondering what went behind that that uh that choice and what have people said about that it's been extraordinary the response i mean we hear from parents of autistic children we hear from autistic adults asperger's adults and children uh, all the time i mean every week um, about how much it, it moves them to see something that like themselves portrayed on screen in a Bible show. It's never been done before. Yeah. Um, the, what did, went into it was, was, was what went into our, our decisions on how to portray a lot of the characters from the Bible is you look at what you can, what you see in scripture, which is usually very little. 
And then you kind of decipher what you can, and then you work your way backwards to kind of explain what led to the big decisions that they made or the big Bible stories that we've read. Mm-hmm. So we see that Matthew was a, um, a, a numbers guy, a finance guy, because he was a tax collector. So he was, a, he was a numbers guy. He was a facts guy. The first chapter of his book is nothing but a genealogy uh, that was divided into three uh, sections of, of – uh, I'm blanking on the number. I think it's 14, mm-hmm. um, but three sections of 14 apiece. And then uh, he also um, chose a profession that made him a social outcast. Mm. And so all of those things, as we were writing them down, I, you know, I'm, I'm a parent of an autistic child and I know the special needs community extremely well. I've done a lot of work in that community. And I thought, boy, these are characteristics of, mm. of the spectrum, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if we had a character on the spectrum uh, that, you know, and, and that, that's what led to it. And we just embraced it. And the actor who plays Matthew uh, also embraced this notion, and so we worked very hard on a lot of the little, the little details, kind of the hand, you know, wringing of his hands, and the inability to understand jokes sometimes. Mm. All of that went into it. And I think it's really had a huge impact on what people say about the show, and that they connect with the humanity of it. I think it just makes yeah. the show feel more human, which then makes it even feel even more real, right. which makes it feel even more uh, understandable as to why they might want to. Uh, consider Christ as the answer to some of these issues. Wow, that's fascinating. That third voice you're hearing, by the way, is Dallas Jenkins. He is the creator, director, and co-writer of The Chosen, the first multi-season series about the life of Christ and the highest crowdfunded media project of all time. You can learn more at thechosen.tv or just download the app to watch all of season one. He's going to stick around with us for one more segment here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, the right reverend Brian Fromm, as we like to say. You can find out a whole bunch more about our show on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We encourage you weigh in on the articles that we share there. The whole point is for that to be a space for us to disagree, dialogue, and debate. You can also send us messages. You can find out more at 1160hope.com slash the common good or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And I I haven't fact-checked yet, Dallas, but I, I do think you are in top three most repeated guests and one of our favorite guests here on the common good was that did you buy that was that <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah now i will consider casting you in the show because yeah, you're such a i knew it i knew that's all it would take brian and i are both words of affirmation guys so even if even if it sounds that it, it was sarcastic it's genuine i promise but uh uh-huh. one of the things that's been so interesting is watching the success of the chosen and watching not only how sort of you navigate that online but also, you 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 seem to be really intent on often talking about failures and projects that didn't blow up the way that you thought that they would. How, how have you navigated sort of like the rising success and fame, not only of the show, but I imagine you're now more in the public eye and public perception, but you're also kind of like the Jesus guy in that sphere, in that realm. How How have you navigated sort of the growing success of the show? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, my wife has been really sharing with me for the last year and a half had how God has kept her in the old Testament uh, for whatever reason. And she thinks one of it, one of the reasons is because the old Testament is basically a case study in the handling of success or failure. Mm. Um, it's a constant just, and then this guy experienced success or, and then this guy experienced failure or this woman experienced success or failure. And here's how they dealt with it. And here's how God dealt with them. And she said, Success was far more dangerous and was led to far more trouble than failure did. Mm. And so 
um, it's no secret that my last film uh, that came out in 2017 was a pretty significant disappointment, um, could be considered a failure, at least from a career perspective. And that changed me. I mean, that made me someone who, and, and, and this is this is the important thing about it, it made me someone who wasn't reliant on se- success or failure for whether or not I believed that what I was doing was right. Meaning, God uh, made it very, very clear to me in very explicit ways. It's not my job to feed the 5,000. It's only to provide the loaves and fish. Right. And I genuinely embrace that. And, and, and that's the key, not to just hear that and not just to think it's a really nice phrase, but to truly embrace it. And when you truly embrace that philosophy and that truth, and you realize that when you bring your loaves and fish to God, and he deems them worthy of acceptance, mm. like Jesus did to the boy who brought the loaves and fish to him in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. That's where the transaction ends. Right. You, you are not responsible for what happens after that, whether God chooses to multiply it or not. Mm. You just are responsible for ensuring that he accepts it and that your loaves and fish are as good and healthy as they can be. Mm. And when you, I'm telling you, it is a, it is a superpower to get to that place where that is really all that you care about. Mm. And so I don't define myself now by success or by the fact that now I'm getting more recognized in public or like you said, being known as the, as the Jesus guy, which in many ways could, could also be crippling. You know, you you could, you could start to go, Oh my goodness. And and I'm not saying this at all to, to, to brag. I'm saying this is the truth. I'm responsible for season two of a show that is currently being watched around the entire world and people are saying it is it is imp- imp- impacting their view of who Jesus is and, and it is drawing them closer to scripture and all that. That is a tremendous weight. And I could easily just get crippled by that and, rel- and, and think to myself, oh, my goodness, I'm responsible for the spiritual lives of millions of people. And that's just completely ridiculous. It's not true. Of course, God is responsible for their spiritual lives, as are they. And I'm just simply a very, very small tool in this as you guys are as well, as pastors right. and as radio hosts. Right. Right. So the fact that right now my show happens to be viewed by more people doesn't change my what happens when I wake up in the morning, what happens when I go to bed at night, doesn't change my relationships with my wife and kids, doesn't change the decisions I have to make, and it really doesn't matter, honestly, whether I'm, it's being viewed by millions or in the case of The Resurrection of Gavin Stone, my last film is being viewed by only thousands. Mm-hmm. Either way, my job is the same. And that's that's the secret code to um, to to whatever uh, in, in endeavor you take on in your life. That's good. Oh, that's great, Dallas. I, I did want to get you. Ever since we've had you on, we've talked about the whole entertainment world uh, as a whole. And, and Ian and I have spent so much time talking about this concept of cancel culture. We talked about it last week with about Ellen DeGeneres. We've talked about it in churches, in politics, whatever else. I'm really curious, as somebody who's kind of in the public eye, like yourself. Just what are your thoughts about this kind of rising tide of cancel culture we have going on? Well, that's another thing that I think is really important is that em- that embracing that fact of not you know being responsible for feeding the five thousand. Um, when you can get to a point where you genuinely don't care mm. what the criticism is or lack thereof, like if you don't care about the praise and you don't care about the criticism, then no one can cancel you. Mm. I think cancel culture is insidious. I think that. Look, even as someone who's a Christian conservative, I sometimes see I'm seeing people who are progressive heroes get canceled or get criticized 
for by other progressive heroes. Right. And it reminds me of the 80s when it used to be the other way around, when it was Christians who were always boycotting and publicly criticizing and trying to cancel people. And they were told accurately, um, you know, quit trying to shove your beliefs down everyone else's throat, quit trying to um, expect other people to live the way you live. Uh, you know, boycotts aren't going to be as effective in, in, in changing people's minds. And now it seems like uh, it's, it's, it's gone the other way. And so all that to say, um, I, I, I really, partially because I've seen friends of mine get quote unquote canceled. I've seen my dad who wrote the Left Behind series get criticized all the time. And right. he just didn't care. He really didn't care. True, He always said truth and time walk hand in hand. And hmm. uh, I really, I really believe that. So um, I don't. I don't believe I, I believe you get canceled only if your boss cancels you or if you <laughs> let yourself get canceled publicly. Right. And, uh, you know, at the, quite frankly, I don't have a boss on this project <laughs> and I'm not going to let myself get canceled unless God decides to take all this away, which he is absolutely capable of doing. And I would rejoice in it if he did, because I'll, I'm, I want to be in his will. <laughs> but the criticism and the praise, I think, are both sides of the same coin. <laughs> and I'm not moved um, what I'm moved by is when someone says my life has changed because of the show. Yeah, yeah, right, um, yeah. I'm not moved when someone says, oh, you're such a great director or you're a horrible person who's blaspheming mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you, you 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 should, you know, repent of your of, of everything you've done. I, I, neither one uh, is is impacting me now. And I, I work on that very hard mm-hmm. because I've struggled with narcissism in my life and I don't want to struggle with that again. Yeah, right. Well, Dallas, let me just say it's been a joy to watch you navigate all this. It's been a joy to not only watch the show in general kind of grow in popularity, but to see people that I know personally and care about deeply be affected and shaped and inspired by your work. So just to say it out loud, thank you for who you are and the work that you're doing on the show. And if you're listening and you're hearing Dallas for the first time, I cannot encourage you enough. Go to the chosen.tv or better yet, just download the app and uh, I guarantee you will not regret it. Dallas, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, bud. Well, thanks for having me on. And, and I want to make this point very quickly is that you guys as pastors, I think, are who we're handing the ball off to after people watch the show. Mm-hmm. When people watch the show, that's not the end game. Discipleship is ultimately the end game. And so thank you for what you do and keep up the great work on the show. And in, as, as uh, shepherds of your flock, um, we're just we're, I'm just trying to help give you more tools in your tool belt um, with, with this show. So thanks so much for having me on. Thanks, man. Thanks, I appreciate Dallas. it very much. Yep. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Hey everyone, welcome back 
to the common good for the final time today. Don't worry, we'll be back again on Monday and every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. I do need to remind people sometimes that this is a radio show first. Some people, it's like, oh, man, I always listen to your podcast. I'm like, I appreciate that. It is also a radio show, though. Some people are not aware of that. But uh, we're super grateful for all of you. It's been a wild week. It's been a wild couple of months, to be honest. And uh, your notes and messages and feedback and reviews have meant the world. And we're super, super grateful for all of you. I just want to say that before we headed into the weekend. A couple of things real quickly. Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. You can review that page. You can like that page. You can interact with articles or send us a message. You can also go to Instagram or Twitter at Common Good Talk if you want to stay in touch with us outside of this show there. You can also go to 1160hope.com slash the common good and wherever it is you get your podcast. Some of you are listening via podcast right now. I see you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing and rating and reviewing. It seems like a small thing, but all that stuff does really help us out a whole ton and we're really, really grateful. I saw this uh, article. This is maybe a week or so old from Christianity Today and the headline says the debate beneath our debates on the pandemic and the protest. I don't know, Brian, have you seen any debates about either of those topics, pandemics or protests? No, there seems like great unity on both of those. Increasing yeah. unity, right? <laughs> almost, <laughs> almost eerie, isn't it? But- do you remember the other day, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we jokingly just put on our Facebook page, we literally said, if we mentioned the name Donald Trump, people just go crazy. And so we mm. just wrote the name Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I think this week, I think uh, this week we should just write masks and just see what happens. <laughs> oh, why would you want to? Why would you want to do that? That feels. That feels no so, other commentary, uh, no other words, just that. <laughs> just masks? Question mark. Okay. Protest? Question mark. Either way, I like the. Uh, this is from uh, Timothy Kleiser, and the subheading is: Our divided responses to national challenges reflect deep divisions on what it means to be human. Which I read that and I was like, okay, I'm in. Like this feels like in a lot of ways, our heartbeat and vision for the show. Like, what are the things that divide us and how can we better focus on the stuff that we have in common? So why don't you launch us into this article? Yeah, and it's it's both an article and also a review of a new book out yeah. called Introduction to Theological Anthropology mm-hmm. uh, by Joshua Ferris uh, that came out in late April. And so this is Christianity Today's review. And he says, uh, it begins this way, all interest in disease and death is only another expression of interest in life. Novelist Thomas Mann penned these words long ago, and they continue to prove true in light of COVID-19 and the national police protests we're experiencing today. These ongoing challenges present litmus tests for our beliefs about ourselves. Our answers to questions like, should I wear a mask in public or how should I respond to police brutality are rooted in our answers to more foundational questions such as, what does it mean to be human? How much is a human life worth? Who are my neighbors and what do I owe them? Uh, what is the destiny of humankind? In other words, our divided responses to the pandemic and protests expose the fact that we're deeply divided over the nature and purpose of humanity. Any meaningful effort to address our nation's challenges then must be grounded in a deep understanding of what, who, and why we are. Hmm. It's precisely these three categories that Joshua Ferris explores in his new book. Uh, it, tr- it says this latest book represents his attempt to distill these issues into a single accessible volume that traces his answers to the what, who, and why question. So I'll pause there and go uh, and ask, th- that's pretty philosophical. That's pretty, um, that takes it to a really deep level. Uh, 
which on some level to say that we've got to get to those questions to understand what's really going on. I don't know if that uh, causes you to have less hope that we can answer these questions because most people aren't probably uh, willing to go to that level. Uh, I don't know that it requires a willingness on everyone's part to go to that level. And I will admit a bias, you know, even in the description above, it says that he's a theologian and a philosopher, that kind uh-huh. of merging of interests has always been a pretty dynamite pairing in my mind, like Dallas yeah. Willard would fit in that category. Like just people who, when you're talking about those being your areas of expertise and trying to unpack all of the questions that he's talking about, the, the, what, who, and why we are, these anthropological questions are, you're right. They're things that we don't tend to like sort of think about in our day to day, wake up, have cereal, scroll Facebook, do my job, pay my taxes. You know what I mean? Like I, that's exactly why I think we need writers like this. And just to speak it into existence, I would love to have him on the show to talk about this book because I think it sounds fascinating. So if he's listening or the powers that be can make that happen, uh, I think that would be great. But this, this is for me really why I want to talk about it now. Um, it says humans live and die by stories, writes Ferris. He means that each of us possess a narrative identity that's made up of the stories we tell ourselves to help us make sense of ourselves and our place in the world. The question then is not whether we identify with some overarching narrative, but which narrative it is. According to Ferris, what primarily distinguishes one narrative from another is its account of human nature. That is to say, our beliefs about who we are and why we exist depend a great deal on what we believe ourselves to be, which, again, might feel silly uh, on the surface because people might be saying, well, I'm I'm a human. I, that's that's what everyone that's what every human thinks themselves to be. But I think it's I think it's deeper than that. Uh, he says there's no shortage of views on human nature, and Ferris does a careful and balanced job of presenting the ones that have been the most influential. Yet he devotes most of his attention to contrasting the two most pressing narratives. Do you want to take a swing at pronouncing that? Uh, physicalism, physicalism, and substance So. Yeah. If for no other reason, go Google physicalism and substance dualism, and I think your mind will begin to melt a little bit. But they're they're really it's really really interesting when you begin to see these as like origin anchoring stories that the vast majority of us tend to fit into one of two of those categories, and that informs and affects I think the kind of life that we end up living. Yeah, and then he later is going to talk about dignity. He says, in a time of global pandemic and protests against racial violence, it would seem the last thing we need to hear is that our bodies aren't essential to our identities. Ferris would argue the exact opposite. We can't reclaim the full dignity of our bodies without recovering the doctrine that first and foremost, we are souls. Right. According to Ferris, what's at stake in the debate between physicalism and substance dualism is the permanence of human identity. Because physicalism is based on a materialistic evolutionary view of human origins, he argues, impermanence is built into its metaphysics. Hmm. If each of us is swept up in a cosmic sea of evolutionary flux, can there be any stable ground upon which to fix our personal identities? Hmm. What makes you, you, your body as it changes over time. So would your identity, your memories, they come and go uh, just as quickly by failing uh, to establish personal identity, physicalism inevitably opens the door for private total- totalizing interpretations of the self in which people are valued or devalued based on sliding scales. It, this is just going to keep going and it's, <laughs> it's really powerful, but it's this, it is this not only what makes you, you, but what makes another person valuable, what gives them value and what makes them, them. 
Uh, he is right. It plays into these debates about what do you believe about the pandemic? What do you believe about racial injustice? What do you believe about pro- all this kind of stuff? Uh, it really, they go hand in hand. And so, uh, yeah, this would be a fascinating guy, guy to have on. And uh, he would use a lot of big words, I'm also guessing. <laughs> I think it was... Uh... I think it was George McDonald who said, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body, mm-hmm. which I don't know that I entirely agree with. And I think this raises all sorts of other interesting implications with regards to whether or not churches should reopen. You know, I heard someone say just the other day that digital church is an oxymoron, that there is actually no such thing as a purely digital church. It's a good supplement. It's meeting a need right now. But the enfleshed, embodied physical gathering is the incarnate gathering, maybe someone would say, is is not only like, oh, I prefer it because I'm a social being, but actually really, really central and core to our doctrine. So I, I would have all sorts of questions for this guy, but I think he would be a fascinating interview. Yeah. It's a long article, but it's up on our Facebook page, and we would love to know what you think, as always. And with that said, we are wrapping up a very long but very fascinating week, and we are so glad that you have joined us for it. Hope you'll join us again on Monday from 4 to 6 p.m., for Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.